All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning as we continue to discuss finances. I pray you help us to be good stewards. We desire to understand uh, finances well so that we can serve you well. We see considerable amounts of scripture in the Old and New Testament associated with money. Um, more of Jesus' parables were about money, I believe, than anything else that may be hell, and, uh, which reveals its importance. Help us to make um, decisions that please you and honor you with our finances, Lord. And I pray as we focus on saving this morning and over any following weeks that you give us application for our lives, Lord, uh, and help us to see how best we can serve you as we save. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. amen. All right, good to see all of you. So anyone make any New Year's resolutions and be willing to share them? We're in February, so it wasn't that long ago. And we'll find out if any of you are still maintaining them. All right, we got a brave soul over here. Johnny. Hustle. Uh, me and Faith actually did uh, sit down and create a new budget that we've been sticking to pretty close. Uh, what? I, th- I think we've been doing pretty good. Um, good. So, yeah, that, that was uh, ours. Good job, Lane. So that was a New Year's resolution. Yeah, we've yeah. we talked about it for a couple months before like, Kevin started getting Good. And considering it's February, that means you have kept your New Year's resolution much longer than most people. <laughs> what? I just heard that. Johnny, stay over there. He's got a lot more to say, apparently. I did hear that like the first week of February is the average uh, time that New Year's resolutions fall through, I guess. 64% of New Year's resolutions... Uh, don't last longer than the first month. So 64% don't make it to February. So you're ahead of two-thirds of the competition. Any other resolutions out there? Anyone else want to share any? Don't have to be necessarily financial. No other resolutions or nobody else wants to share theirs? Liz. Here we go. Go ahead. 20 pounds and it's not going well. 20 pounds? (laughs) Okay. Well, you have the whole year to work on it, or did you have a deadline? The whole year. The whole year? Okay, well, yeah, that's not... You got a lot of time left, then. Anyone else? Okay, well, actually, we hit the two most common New Year's resolutions, health, uh, health and fitness. Um, exercising more, going on a diet, losing weight is number one, the most common New Year's resolution, and second relates to finances. Um, again, most New Year's resolutions, oh, at 46%, not 64%. I read that wrongly. So almost half don't make it to the second month. Oh, wait, sorry, I read that wrong. 64% don't last longer than the first month, and only, and only 46% make it longer than six months. So that just um, reminds us how difficult it is to change. I think New Year's resolutions show us more than anything else how difficult it is to change, because that's what they're about. They're about changing something in our lives and how difficult it is to stick with it. So we get in the habit of doing things one way, it's difficult to do them differently, uh, and that's why the Bible, I think, warns us about losing good habits and developing bad habits. Don't be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, and then 1 Timothy 5, 13, it says that they, speaking of uh, single women, get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. One of the habits that we've seen develop during the season of covid uh, does anyone know one of the habits we've seen people develop a bad habit from the season of COVID? Wearing masks? <laughs> Who said that? My daughter said that? 
Jake? Go ahead. Is it not gathering yep. with the body? Yeah, First Corinthians, or Hebrews 10.25, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some. So that's a bad habit that some people develop, not one you guys are, are uh, following, though, which is great, but it did. But we see that some people who used to attend church regularly enjoyed perhaps being in there. And this is what I would tell people during COVID. I said, hey, if you are not coming to church for, for health reasons, then that's a very reasonable reason to not go to church. But if that's, you know, you're, the, the way you combine faith and wisdom, right? We're all trying to follow the path of faith and wisdom. And during COVID, for some people, that meant staying home. I thought that was very reasonable. Tried to support people that made that choice. But then if you're, what's the other reason people might be staying home? Because they like pajamas and coffee, right? <laughs> and if you want to stay home because you want to worship in your pajamas and drink coffee, then that's not a good reason to stay home. And then some people develop the habit of doing that on Sundays versus worshiping corporately. Okay. Uh, we develop the habit of spending or saving money. We develop the habit of spending or saving money. And, and the word or is very deliberate there because you can't develop the habit of both. No matter what people might say, you can't develop the habit of spending money and saving money. They're mutually exclusive. Be like trying to walk in, in two different directions. I've spoken with people who habitually spend money, and they will defend their actions by talking about how much they've saved but they've still developed the habit of spending money. They've just kind of found a way to, to justify it. For some people, spending money uh, moves from being a habit to being an addiction. And one of the reasons I think it's important to talk about this, besides kind of what I pray, just to be reminded of it, if the, the ways we determine um, important topics are by their frequency in Scripture. And so you can tell prayer, forgiveness, service, humility, these are important topics because of their uh, the frequency they're discussed in scripture. Well, money is also a very frequently discussed topic, which tells us that the way we handle it or our stewardship of it is very important. And one of the problems with uh, having a poor habit associated with money or spending money too frequently is that it can become an addiction or an obsession. Here's three testimonies that I found. Although the women are in view here, there could be men who, who would have the same problem or same addiction or uh, obsession. So listen to this. This is from the LA Times. Michelle feared the day her husband might discover her secret stash of credit cards, her secret post office box, or the other tricks that she used to hide how much money she spent shopping for herself. She said, I make as much money as my husband, and if I want a $500 suit from Ann Taylor, I deserve it, and I don't want to be hassled about it. So the easiest thing to do is lie. Last year, when her husband forced her to destroy one of her credit cards, she went out and got a new one without telling him. She also said, I do live in fear. If he discovers this new visa, he will kill me. The next woman said, Men just don't understand that shopping is our drug of choice. And I just thought it was interesting. That's one reason I wanted to include this testimony because there can be a, a euphoria or a response to shopping that's close to the euphoria people feel, feel from drugs or, or other activities. So this woman said, men just don't understand that shopping is our drug of choice. Even while admitting that some months her entire salary goes to paying the minimum balance on her credit cards, she added, walking through the door of South Coast Plaza is like walking through the gates of heaven. God, and then she said, God made car trunks for women to hide shopping bags in. <laughs> it's sort of funny, but it's also sort of what? 
yeah, sad or scary. The third woman said this, shopping is my recreation. It is my way of pampering myself. When you walk into a mall and you see all the stores, it's like something takes over and you get caught up in it. So three in five women admit to hiding purchases from their husbands. Uh, These women are basically slaves to money. And uh, again, men can have the problem too, but it might be more common with, with women. So the good news is any thoughts or anything? Any thoughts or questions before we move on? So the good news is all of us can change. Even if you're the biggest spender, you can develop the habit of saving money. Basically, that, that same passion or euphoria you feel associated with spending and shopping, you can feel with, associated with saving or paying off debt. You can become excited about maxing your retirement, your IRA, or paying off that credit card as you did previously feel about, about um, certain purchases. I think my wife, if she wanted to share, would say that she experienced a pretty dramatic change going from be, be, um, spending money very comfortably to enjoying saving and paying off debt and being excited about that. So as much as you used to enjoy, or as much as spending used to be a habit, saving can become a habit. Let's talk about the Bible's view of saving, what the Bible says about this, so that you don't think this is just a, uh, you know, an unspiritual or unbiblical discussion this morning. As negatively as the Bible talks about debt, which we concluded uh, in, my, in the previous few Sunday schools that I taught, it speaks equally positively of saving. Proverbs 21.20, it says, The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. So it's got food and olive oil there in, in view, but obviously, you know, those could be uh, metaphors for money or for other things that would be saved up wisely. And the idea is foolish people are going to spend, or it says gulp down what they have, but wise people are going to save or are going to store it up. Proverbs thirteen twenty two, um, which we had mentioned regarding condemning the government's view of debt, but also discusses saving. It says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And so the only way someone could leave something to their children's children would be obviously if they saved versus spent everything that they had. And I would also assume probably you can be sure to leave stuff for your grandchildren or your children's children if you teach your children to save or, or be frugal. I don't think it's just the idea that you save up enough money that you're able to pass it along. You know, that you save up such a, such a nest egg that it, it's able to reach your grandchildren. I think part of it is you pass along to your children good habits that they pass along to their children. So what would this verse look like when followed? You'd have people who saved up enough that it reaches their grandchildren. In the New Testament, Paul said, 2 Corinthians 12, 14, children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents are obligated to save up for their children in 2 Corinthians 12, 14. Um, Folly fritters away, it's unprepared for the future, but wisdom conserves, makes provision, and the ant is one of the clearest examples that the Old Testament uses. Proverbs 6, 8, the ant stores her supplies in summer and she gathers her food in harvest. Proverbs chapter 30, four things, and I won't mention all of them, but just, just the ant here. Four things are little on the earth, but are exceedingly wise. And it mentions the ant. The ants are a people that are not strong, yet they're wise because they provide their food in the summer. Or again, the idea is that they're, they are saving. Any questions or anything? So ants are exceedingly wise because they know how to save. And so you recognize there is a, a coming need and you prepare for it, and that's wisdom. Foolishness would basically see danger and not. I can't. Does anyone remember the proverb? I should have written it down, but 
Foolishness is recognizing a danger or a threat and not preparing for it. Does anyone know that? Or could someone find that and then raise their hand so that they can share it? And then Johnny will run the microphone over to you, the foolish person who sees the danger or threat but doesn't prepare for it. So preparing for danger or threats or the future uh, allows us to care for ourselves, our family members, our friends, our neighbors. A great example, who can think of a great example in Scripture of someone who saw a danger or threat and then prepared for it? Joseph. Joseph is probably the premier example. So during the seven, this is from Genesis 41, I'll read some of the verses. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and Joseph gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it couldn't be measured. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. So there's a bunch of synonyms in there for saving. For example, there's, um, well, it talks about... um, If saving and gathering or storing up, it talks about plentiful years, produced abundantly, and then gathered up, stored up um, from the years of plenty. And so the idea is he recognized this abundance and then used that to prepare for the future. And then it actually says that many people's lives, many people were kept alive because of his efforts in Genesis 50, verse 20. Any thoughts or anything? All right. Financial regrets pretty much one of the most common regrets that people have. As a pastor, off the top of my head, if I told you the two most, three most common regrets that I've noticed or had people share with me, uh, and I don't say this to condemn anyone or anyone's approach to children, I hope that I might be able to spare someone or people or couples from experiencing this regret. Because you can talk about things and people could think you're trying to condemn them I mean, as a pastor or any, really any Bible teacher, when you could be trying to help other people avoid that same regret, and that's really what I desire with this, but one of the most common regrets people have shared with me is that they haven't had more children, and so, and often have reached that, uh, had that regret when they didn't, didn't feel like they could do anything about it, and so I hope that if even, you know, we, we've been really blessed, Katie and I have met people who have said that they've had more children because of things that we've shared with them, and that's been you know, an incredible, even one person that came here one Sunday morning to introduce me to a child that I had prayed that, you know, they'd been able to have, and it was just, you know, really thrilling for me, and we, we up at Cary Green's church as a family there, they sent us a card when they had another child and said, hey, here's the child that we ended up having, because it was something I think Katie might have written on, on Facebook, or I had preached about children being a blessing, and so that was really incredible, and so I hope none of you have to experience that regret. The second regret which you can't do anything about this, is people who have lamented the person that they married. That is a terribly sad regret, isn't it? Um, The solution to that is not to divorce or marry someone else. People have said, well, how do you know if you married the right person? I would say, you know you married the right person uh, on your wedding day because the person you married became the right person, whether they were before that or not. That's who you're going to spend your life with and make the best of it. And then the third regret most commonly people have is associated with finances. It's not saving. So despite the importance of saving, 69% of Americans have less than $1,000 in their savings account, and 34% have no savings at all. Um, And I mention that because that's going to hinder our ability to serve the Lord. There could be things that we might want to do or that God might want us to do, 
And if we don't have the finances for that, then we're unable. It could be being generous. It, it could be taking on, uh, you know, a ministry in an unpaid capacity. It could be going somewhere or doing something. I knew a gentleman who had, whose friend was dying of cancer. And so he flew across the country immediately. He learned this person was entering hospice and he just hopped on a plane. I thought it was, I thought it was a very gracious move, but I thought it was a generous move because I don't think buying a plane ticket to you know, leave within a few hours, which is basically what he seemed to do, to go be with this friend who had cancer. And so I just mentioned that because it's one example of someone that had, he had been wise financially and was in a position to be able to do that. Any other thoughts or any other examples come to mind like that? Samuel? Go ahead. Wait, let Johnny get back there. We're glad to have the mic going around. Oh, you found the verse? Yeah. It's Proverbs 27, 12. It says, The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, so they see a threat, but don't, don't take in, don't respond. And so indirectly, that could apply to, to finances. Anyone else? Okay, 70% of people said they would be in a difficult situation if their paycheck was delayed even one week. So that's really living paycheck to paycheck when you wouldn't even have, when you'd be able to make it one week without it. Uh, I think one of the, I've said before, one of the worst things to have to say is I wish I could go back. So how much better our lives would be if we don't have to make that statement. On the other hand, one of the best things to be able to say is I'm glad that I, I made this decision uh, that I did. And if you ask people about their biggest regrets and they tell you about finances, it typically relates to saving and wishing that they had started saving earlier, uh, especially for the young people. I'm glad I have young people here the you are in a unfortunately when you're younger and you don't have a lot of responsibilities a lot of bills or expenses maybe you don't have a family or a home you, because your expenses look so low you're more inclined to just spend the money you have but that's actually the time you should be saving it because it gets more expensive later and so one of the best things you could do while your expenses are low is try to save for the future when they when they go up Statistically, more than three in four Americans, more, more than three in four Americans have a financial regret associated with not saving, uh, not starting early enough. So let's talk about how we can save the right way. There's one verse that I think is incredibly important in this discussion. Uh, it's Proverbs 13:11, and it says, "Wealth gained dishonestly will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase." Wealth gained dishonestly will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. So how would people try to gain dishonestly? What are some dishonest ways besides just stealing? Any thoughts or anything? Jake? Uh, maybe like tax evasion yep. or something like that. Just thinking yeah. with us approaching that. I was trying to work on mine yesterday pretty late last night. <laughs> yeah. Any other thoughts? Gamb- yeah, well, interestingly, if you view those as being immoral, which I would say gambling can, can be immoral, then, yeah, that would be a, a way to do something that uh, would be displeasing to God. And then it says, he who gathers by labor will increase. And so that seems to applaud wealth that is gained um, by hard work. So it encourages consistent, steady saving week after week, month after month, and year after year. If you take your mind back to the parable of the talents, uh, it says that he who received the five talents, he went at once and he traded... Well, I'll just read the verses to you. He who received the five talents went at once 
and he traded with them and he made five talents more he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money but his master said you wicked and slothful servant you knew that i reap where i have not sown and gather where i scatter no seed then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and on my coming i should have received what was my own with interest and so we can actually see that the um, third servant was condemned for his laziness but in particular the master pointed out that he didn't invest it and he did not gain any interest on it so that might be one of the clearest discussions of interest or investing and interest in all of scripture there where the master condemns this servant for not investing where his the his wealth could have gained at least a little interest any questions or thoughts uh ben nice and loudly I actually have a question that is in my mind here. Um, would debt be considered dishonest gain? Because it's not really what you have earned. So I have a thought. Does anyone else want to share something before I respond? Okay, well, I would say if you're not paying it back, then that would be dishonest. And if you don't have any intention of paying it back, then that would be dishonest. If it's within your ability to pay it back and you choose not to, then I would say that's dishonest as well. Anyone else have any thoughts, even if they disagree with me? Sorry, Ben, that's all you got, just what I have to say about it. What do you think? Yeah, you got the mic right there, Ben. Where is it? Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I do have some thoughts on that as far as, I don't want to be too controversial, but yes, I do believe that debt is a form of dishonest gain because you're not actually paying, you're paying with what you do not own and what you have not earned. Okay. Um, and... I do believe it's a form of our financial system, but I think, and, and there is a certain amount of debt that is probably taken on honestly, but a lot of debt is dishonest in its intent, and then it is used to make us appear like something we're not. Hmm. Okay. I appreciate you said appearing as something we're not. Do you want to elaborate on that? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, now I have to explain what I say. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so appearing as what we're not. So, um, I don't know if there's any spiritual basis in this, but that statement came from, I, I do believe that as, as Christians we are to be witnesses of who we are. So we're to live as a Christian. We're to live for Christ, okay, before the world around us. Um, that means that our lives are to reflect our, we're to reflect our true home, okay? Our true identity is in Christ, okay? So if we go out and we live like a worldly person, we want to use bad language around the guys because that's cool and things of that nature, then we're appearing to be something we are not. And I believe for us to go out and to, and, and this is something that, you know, is not uh, for everybody, I'm sure, but there's, 
there's a certain amount of question. This is more of a question in my mind and some thoughts that I've had in that I believe that we need to live according to who we are and within our means. And if we're going out and we're putting forth this kind of um, showy exterior to the world that we are worth more than we really are, and a lot of people will actually say when they're deeply in debt for, say, a nice home, they will say, I own it. Well, you don't own it. It's actually owned by the bank until you pay it off. So that's a lie. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So you're appearing to be something you're not. Okay. Here's why, or go ahead, I don't want to interrupt you. Is that it? I think that's all I have to say. Okay, just hold on to the mic. Maybe you'll think of something else. Probably just totally confusing, but... No, no, that was good. Thank you, man. Well, because nobody would know who, who I'm talking about. When we lived in California, we were on this cul-de-sac. Here, here's what I thought you meant. Uh, and all the houses were kind of like ours, just like a 3-2, like a you know, 14 or 1,500 square foot house. And then at the very end of the cul-de-sac was this huge house. And the people that lived there drove fancy vehicles, you know, in and out of their garage. And I didn't know them. I mean, they could have been incredibly generous people. So this isn't really, I I didn't know what they did with the money they had. I didn't know whether they were, um, you know, generous or stingy. I don't know if we ever had one conversation with them. So one day my neighbor was talking about them. And they said, hey, their lives are, their lives are falling apart. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, they're, they don't, they're out of money. They're, they are in too much debt. And so the point was this. They looked a certain way that just wasn't true. The, the house, the cars presented an image that was uh, completely external without the, the internal finances to, for, that, for that lifestyle. And so they, they looked very wealthy, but actually they were, they were, they were, it was all about to collapse was basically what my neighbor was saying, that they're really struggling because they bought a bunch of houses or, or this house or all these vehicles that they couldn't afford. And so that's what I thought you meant, that that would allow people to look a certain way that isn't accurate. So That's you... basically what I was saying. Oh, okay. And I'm right. very confused, and that's the way my brain no, works. No, lo- you, you were saying, I thought you made a good point to look as though live as followers of Christ and portray that hourly. That's what I heard you say. Yeah, that's... that's and I, I guess I came up with these ideas based on I was listening to some guys talk about financial management and things. And these are people on YouTube that I've listened to um, during my work day. I sometimes will run a podcast or whatever. And it, some of it's been on real estate investment as I've been interested in that. And um, these guys will use their credit card and they'll max out their credit card to make a down payment on a house. And then they, so they're using credit for everything. They invest none of their own money. There's a group of guy, you might have heard of Robert Kiyosaki. He's a big yeah. fan of this idea. So you use your credit card. The to, rich dad, poor dad guy. Rich dad, poor right. dad, yeah. yeah. You, you use your credit card to make the down payment on a piece of property. Then you loan you know, everything beyond that down payment. So you put nothing into it. There's none of your own skin in the game. And then if things go south on you, you just walk away from it. And all of the, the banks basically take the fall. Which there's a certain amount of oh, wow. seeming worldly wisdom in that, um, or the, and it's mostly the idea is that you have a tenant in there that pays all of your bills, and you have no money into it, and, and that can be an idea that you can use for your personal home too, 
but that's a whole lot of keeping up appearances because none of it is really real. You have none of your own, um, you, you own nothing. And that's the whole idea behind Robert Kiyosaki's um, business Approach. model. Business model, yeah. Yeah, you own nothing, but it's... But leveraging debt to be wealthy, basically. Yeah, leveraging yeah. debt to be wealthy. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started thinking about this and as Christians, how we should think about these kind of things. And that's where this idea stemmed from. And I was just wondering what you had to say. Well, yeah, I, I mean, Jake said it, and I think maybe Audrey did in a previous discussion, that the question isn't what looks wisest from the world's eyes. The question is what's, what does God's word say? And that's why a lot of some of the podcasts you can listen to or advice, whether in a book like that you can read, encourage leveraging debt to be wealthy because you could you could, uh, you know, purchase a home and rent it out or have it serve as an Airbnb or something and make more than the mortgage. And so you'd actually be making money very passively. But uh, it's a question of whether God wants Christians to have that much debt in their lives and whether debt is a, a biblical approach to finances. And so that's why I, per I personally don't, don't think I would do that. But I know it has worked incredibly well for some people or they become very rich with real estate from that approach. So... All right, so one of the things that the servant said, just to go back to that in the parable of talents, it says he gets this talent, which was a, um, like we would say dollar, they would say talent. You know, this is a name for a currency in Christ's day. And he takes this talent and it says at once he goes and he trades with it. So he's very quick to, to use this well and not, not just bury it in the ground. And I think that looks to um, one of the most important tools we have associated with finances is time. That, that is the main resource that you have with money is time. Um, when I do the senior luncheon, or not senior luncheon, when I do the, the senior dinner with all the graduating seniors, I try to talk to them about the time value of money because one, I don't, I don't, I'm not very convinced it's taught much in school. And two, this is when they have the most time in their lives that they're ever going to have is when they're, where they're graduating. And so um, this, I want to take advantage of that opportunity to talk to them about this, give them some practical tools for life. And then the fourth thing I talked to them about very clearly is the gospel. But this servant runs out, he buries this in the ground, he gets right to putting his talent to work. Uh, the third servant didn't follow that example, he buries his. And this was a common practice in Jesus's day. So when he buries the money in the ground, it's kind of like us burying money where, hiding money where, where is kind of the proverbial, yeah, in the mattress. So some people put in the mattress or the drawer, but this, in Jesus' day, they put in the ground like this. And God rebukes the third servant for failing to invest it and gain any interest. And I think we're being poor stewards if we waste our money on trivial purchases or being poor stewards if we allow it to just sit for years or decades without, without putting it to any, any good use. Um, with inflation, actually, factored in money loses value. So the solution would be to invest as early as possible um, and save that up and, and allow it to grow that way so you can use it for the Lord's kingdom later. So time versus money itself is the great tool we have to increase the value of money. The sooner we start, the, the better the return. Uh, the longer we put off investing, the more money that we end up losing. So I forgot to bring in, I'd like to bring in and put up a chart here on the television. I'll probably do that next Sunday um, where I can show you some of the chart, so show you the time value of money and how it works, just so you have some familiarity with it. I'll do that next week for you guys. Let's talk about accumulating. Any thoughts or anything before we move on? All right, let's talk about gaining money corruptly or gaining money the wrong way. So Proverbs 11.1, 1, it says, A false balance 
is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. What does that mean when it talks about a false balance? Does anyone know? Uh, Michelle? Yep. Yeah. Sorry, I keep interrupting you. Yeah, you go to the marketplace and you're purchasing an amount of grain and so they weigh it and then they say, okay, well, this is how much you're buying and so you'll, you'll pay me this much and they would have a balance that was dishonest that would act as though the person was getting more, more uh, ounces or pounds or whatever the measurement of weight was and that they were. So they would be dishonest with these scales and then charge people more money than uh, they were actually receiving. Yes, Johnny? Isn't that recorded in the Bible in the temple? Say that again? Isn't it recorded in the Bible in the temple? Um, I don't know if that says that. I know that they were, had turned the temple into a money-making scheme. Yeah. The, is that what you mean? And Jesus yeah, and called it Jesus... a den of thieves because they were more concerned about selling animals to be used as sacrifices the, and the money change. Oh, so you're talking about the money changers tables? Yeah. And being dishonest the way that they ch- exchange money with people? Yeah. Yeah, probably. That's a good example. Thank you. Yep. Any other thoughts or questions? Okay. Um, if you want to turn to Second Chronicles 25 to look in an account. Second Chronicles 25. Does anyone remember this account with Amaziah or want to share about it since I'm talking a lot? This might not be the most well-known account. Anyone remember it? Okay, well, here's... Someone other hand up? I should ask Andrew. <laughs> Do you remember it, Andrew? He, that was putting him on the spot. My wife did that, Andrew, not me. He might not. It's kind of an obscure, obscure account. I'm ready to listen to it. Where are you going with it? Okay, all right. So Amaziah is going to go to battle, and he hires these mercenaries. He's the king of the southern kingdom of, of Judah, and he hires these mercenaries from the northern kingdom of Israel, which is an apostate nation at this time. And God did not want uh, Amaziah dealing with the apostate northern kingdom of Israel, and that's where he hires these mercenaries from. And it was very attractive to Amaziah to be able to go to battle with more soldiers. And so he spent, how much was it? 100 talents, which is 7,500 pounds of silver. So he spends 7,500 pounds of silver on these mercenaries to go to battle with him. And then a prophet is sent to him in verse 7. And the prophet comes to him and says, Amaziah, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel. And so he's told to send these mercenaries home, but he's already spent this money on them. And so look, what's, so look at his understandable concern in verse 9. Amaziah says to the man of God, 
what shall we do about the hundred talents that I have given to the troops of Israel? So his understandable concern is, hey, this, I've already wasted this money. You know, I'm not going to get it back. I can't go get a refund or call my bank and have them cancel the check that I wrote or something like that. And so the prophet says in 2 Chronicles 25, verse 9, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. The Lord is able to give you much more than this. And so I just like this account. I think it reminds us that if we do what's, you know, if we're upright or honorable with our finances uh, and we try to follow biblical principles, then God can allow that to stretch much further than if we handle finances dishonorably or, or immorally. And so it's just an account that my mind um, goes to that reminds us to that, you know, God is in charge and he can do a lot more with our finances than we could do in our own corrupt or immoral, immoral efforts. So just if you circle it or highlight it, you know, the Lord is able to give you much more than this, basically. And that was a lot of money that he had given up to these, to these individuals. And, and the really interesting thing about this, it's another interesting account regarding the way that Amaziah ends up suffering for doing what's right. So sometimes there's kind of this idea that if we obey, we'll be blessed and we only suffer when we do wrong. But Amaziah does what's right, and he obeys God, and he sends these mercenaries home. But where were the mercenaries going to get the rest of their money? Yeah, the battle, from the spoils of this battle. And so they were not at all happy about being sent home by Amaziah. I don't know if they took it, took it personally, but they were at least upset about the wealth that they were going to lose. And so for the, these mercenaries to travel back to the northern kingdom of Israel from the southern kingdom of Judah... They had to march through many towns or cities in Judah. And as they went back home, they decided, well, if we're not going to be able to attack any enemies to get spoiled, we'll just attack some of the cities in Judah and we'll take the wealth and spoil from them. And so when these angry mercenaries marched home, they attacked a bunch of Amaziah cities or a bunch of cities in Judah, took the wealth and spoil from them. And it just kind of strikes me as odd because it's so counter to what we typically think that if we do what's right, it's going to result in blessing. And that's not always the case. Uh, Johnny, take it to back there to Dave, please. Is that really the way we should look at it or, we should, or should we look at it as even after we repent of our sin, it still has consequences? Okay, that's true. Because you could say... If I'm understanding you, I, I, as soon as you started to talk, I thought that might be what you're... <laughs> it, occurred to me that, it occurred to me that I'm saying he obeyed and suffered, but it also occurred to me that he disobeyed. And is that what you're saying, that he disobeyed? Yeah, it's similar to David's situation where he was forgiven for what he did with Bathsheba, but he still... His family had lifelong consequences. And when you hear that he was, it was prophesied that the sword should never leave his house... I've often wondered if that even went down clear to Christ because Christ suffered from the sword, from the military, from civil authorities. And so even in Christ's case, is that part of the reason Christ suffered? I mean, we know Christ would have suffered anyway, but that prophecy says the sword shall never leave your house. So I've wondered about that. But yeah, when we sin and then we repent, it doesn't mean that we aren't going to have to suffer with the consequences of it. Yeah, so, t- so two things. So Dave, you're saying house, and the house of David is the house of Christ because Christ is of the house of David. He is the son of David, and so to say the sword never departs from the house of David would be to say that it would reach Christ because Christ was from the house of David. So it's, it, it, when, I hadn't thought of that before. 
I don't, I don't have a thought off the top of my head, but it wouldn't be too much to say that if the, if the sword never departs from his house and Jesus is part of that house, then Jesus would suffer as well as a result of that. So that's an insightful um, question to consider. And then second, you're saying that repentance does, does not, it, it, repentance results in forgiveness, but not the absence of consequences. Okay, yeah, that's a good thing to, to keep in mind because I think we can tend to think, well, if we, if we repent, then will be forgiven and then we won't have consequences and that's kind of why there's a saying it's easier to um, ask for forgiveness than permission the, so people say they say it's easier to ask for ask for forgiveness than permission and the idea is you just do what you you're not going to get permission to do what you shouldn't do so you do what you shouldn't do and then you just ask for permission for you ask for forgiveness for it later but i don't think that's a very true statement because it can be a lot tougher to ask for um, forgiveness and suffer as a result than if you'd ask for permission in the first place. So good discussion or good observation, Dave. Any other thoughts? Kitty? Maybe, um, Go, one second, let Johnny run it to you. Maybe Jeremiah and Joseph would be better examples of people that obeyed and suffered. Okay. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of people that, I mean, Hebrews 11 is filled with people that obeyed and suffered terribly the men of faith there. But do you see how Amaziah did what the prophet said? He at least obeyed in that short term and then still suffered when the, when the mercenaries went home, destroyed his nation. So, so after I, one time I remember in my life, uh, I wasn't familiar with this account, but I'd just become a Christian and I'd spent a lot of money, um, you know, I'm not proud of this, but it spent a lot of money on sinful CDs or worldly CDs. I didn't have any Christian CDs, had a huge music collection, magazine collection from, from my involvement in fitness, fitness um, videos, and wasn't really thrilled, probably thousands of dollars, which, I mean, obviously isn't a big deal in the large scheme of things, but to me, it seemed like a big deal of time, and, the, and very sadly, you know, it's a reflection of my immaturity. My biggest concern associated with getting rid of a lot of this stuff was the money that I lost, but, but I also didn't feel like I could sell it, because if I didn't think I should have it, I didn't think someone else should have it either, you know, so just had to throw in the trash. I just remember throwing all this in the trash and just looking at it in the trash, all these nice CDs and all this, all this money. I, but then the idea was, uh, you know, the Lord can give you much more than this. So any other thoughts before we move on? So I just mentioned this before we start talking about gaining money, um, wisely or biblically or saving morally is that even if it might look look wiser to do something un- unbiblical or wiser from the world's perspective it's good to keep in mind that god's in charge and can do do what he he knows is best for us um, okay proverbs 11 verse 1 a false balance is an abomination to the lord but a just weight is his delight so it's not only a sin to acquire money dishonestly but it actually says that it's an abomination so he didn't say a false balance is sinful, but a false balance is an abomination. And it just kind of strikes me because I think of abominations as being um, incredibly wicked things like child sacrifice. But here it actually says that a false balance is an abomination. So ripping people off is something that to God is abominable. Consider present day examples with accompanying verses that could condemn them. So earning money illegally, Proverbs 10.2 says, treasures of wickedness, treasures of wickedness are money that's gained illegally, profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs 21.6 says, getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. And like Jake mentioned earlier, lying on tax returns would be a good example. 
Proverbs 28.8, it says, one who increases his possessions by usury and extortion gathers it for him who will pity the poor. So one who increases his possessions by usury and extortion, which would mean overcharging people, and then failing to pay people what they're owed. James 5.4 says, indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So here, um, God is condemning people that don't pay people what they deserve. Any thoughts or questions or anything? Okay, listen to this story. So there's a bank officer, and he approaches this junior clerk, and he secretly asks him, he says, if I give you $50,000, would you help me alter the books? And so the clerk replied, yes, I would do that. And then the officer replied, well, would you do it for $100? And then the clerk replies, no way, what do you think I am, a common thief? And then the officer said what? (laughs) He said, we have already established that you are a common thief. Now we are just trying to determine the price, right? So he says, I'll do it for $50,000, but as soon as you're asked to do it for a small amount of money, it's like, well, I'm, I'm too good for that. You know? Well, the point is if you do it for a lot of money, but you wouldn't do it for a little amount of money, then you're as bad as if you're as bad either way. It doesn't make you better for doing it for a smaller amount of money. Um, ungodly people can be bought. One of the best examples in Scripture is Balaam. He was willing to curse Israel for Balak, the king of Moab. We've covered that account uh, in, in this, at this. I preached on it, taught on it in Sunday school. So Balak was willing to go and do some, curse God's own people. He, want, he asked God if God would want him to curse his own people because he wanted the money. He had to know that God would not want him to curse the Israelites any more than you have to ask a parent if they want, him, want their own children to suffer. You know, it, it was just an absurd request, an absurd question to ask God. It was simply a reflection of his, of his covetousness, which is why Balaam is condemned so strongly in the New Testament. 2 Peter 2.15 says he loved gain from wrongdoing. And the Israelites ended up executing him for a sin. Joshua 13 records that. And then the New Testament in Jude 11 and Revelation 2.14. So he serves as this sober warning about trying to gain money corruptly. Uh, there was a friend's son, not someone from this church or anything, that wrecked a family vehicle. And the father lied to the insurance company and said he was driving to save money. And this father shared this with me about how he knew that if he told the insurance company that his son was driving, that the, it was going to be so much more expensive because there's much higher um, you know, premiums associated with young people driving than older people. And so when the father was defending it, he said, well, the, you know, the insurance was going to have to cover it anyway, and I, I had the insurance, and so it was fine for me to tell them that I was the one driving at the time when, in fact, it was my son driving. And I thought, you know, you're worried about money, but you, he kind of thought he was going to be in this better place after lying was what surprised me. He thought that he would put himself in this better place financially after, after deceiving the insurance company like that, which I did not think was going to end up being the case in the long run for him. So if you're tempted to deceive or tempted to deceive the insurance company, fudge on tax returns, or shortchange someone, or step on others to get ahead, it'd be better to do what's right and experience loss. Um, Paul says this, he says, when you do good and suffer, or Peter says it, when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, but if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. It's better to suffer for doing good if that's God's will than for doing evil. So, any thoughts or anything? All right. 
Okay, something else that's condemned is trying to gain money quickly. Trying to gain money quickly. Proverbs 13.11 tells us how to gain money. It says, little by little, little by little. Proverbs 13.11, whoever gathers little by little will increase it, whereas wealth gained hastily is going to dwindle. So the Bible condemns gaining money quickly, which would seem to indirectly condemn what? Huh? Yeah, get rich quick schemes or gambling or the lottery. Um, I said, obviously, the, whole, the lottery is built entirely on the temptation for people to get rich quick. That's the, they're, there's millions of dollars that are gained by the lottery because of the attractiveness of getting rich very, very quickly. I mean, that's what, that's what it's built on, even though people, I would like to think, and I don't want to sound harsh, I don't know if any of you guys have purchased lottery tickets, and I don't want to be offended toward me, but I mean, I like to think even reasonably intelligent people know there is like no chance of them winning, yet the, it's still attractive enough to throw away money on it. Uh, Ethan, Johnny, run this over to Ethan. Don't tell me you purchased a lottery ticket and won a million dollars or something, Ethan. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want me to give you some of it? <laughs> no. You oh, okay. <laughs> what, what, what about an inheritance from like a family member? Because I mean, you're gaining money quickly. Well, I mean, because it, it says you're supposed to give an inheritance to your children or your children's children. That would seem to defend receiving one, you know? So... That would be a quick way, that would be a quickly gained amount of money, but I don't, I don't, I still kind of think the principle is the same in that you shouldn't try to get it because there's one instance of someone who seemed to want his inheritance quickly and that is, it's, it doesn't, he's not condemned um, for that, but I think indirectly it, it's, that's the prodigal son. We'll reach that in Luke 15. And so it, it was sinful for him to, to, you know, basically ask for his dad to die, you know, so... Um, I wouldn't think that if you're told to give an inheritance to your children's children that there should be anything wrong with receiving it, but I don't think you should. You should um, uh, Pastor Nathan, go ahead. And just jumping on that comment about the inheritance, and um, typically with inheritance, there's a responsibility that accompanies it, like taking over the family estate. And biblically speaking, when a man's goods were divided up, if he had four sons, they would divide it into five portions, and the oldest would get the double portion, the greater inheritance because it associated or worked with his responsibility as head of the family. So it, wasn't, uh, it was not to further his own personal gains, but to provide as he provides for the family. Yeah. Yeah, and we've seen, you know, different uh, people caring for their, for their families and parents um, over the later years of their lives, and I think that's very honorable. Ro- Robert? Yeah, I just wanted to add to kind of what Nathan was sharing is the concept of inheritance, any inheritance that we may have to give to our kids are typically uh, built up over a long period of time and then passed down. Um, Not very often does somebody win the lottery and have much of it left to pass down to their kids. And so, again, it's still a a similar concept in a lot of cases. Johnny, you have something? Would you say uh, becoming king is an inheritance? Uh, in the sense that you are descended from the previous king, is that what you mean, and it's kind of given to you? Yeah, so like David's sons wanting to have the inheritance. Or wanting to be king? Yeah. Yes, but some of them, or at least Adonijah, wanted to become king when it wasn't his, hadn't been given to him, and so that was a big problem. Yeah. That was very sinful, and he suffered as a result. 
Ben, Ben's got his hand up back there, Johnny. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't it be said or that an inheritance is a gift? It's not something that's gained through um, some sort of crooked dealings or effort to obtain it? Yeah, I think so. I think in, in, embedded in the word inheritance is inherit. You inherit it, it's given to you, I think. Is there, do you have a point with that, Ben? No, I was just thinking that we were, I was just wondering if we weren't um, missing the point of inheritance and that it's not really something gained through, it's not really something you gain. It's something that is given. given. Similar to our salvation, our salvation is something that's given to us. We just have to accept it. Yeah. It's, anyway, that's all I was thinking about. Okay, thank you, Ben. Good. Any other thoughts? Up here, Johnny. Going back to the lottery, someone told me a long time ago that the lottery is a tax on those who are very bad at math. <laughs> you know, when I'm going to tell a joke, my kids tell me they can tell I'm going to tell a joke, and I can tell when you're going to tell a joke, Ed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Our faces must give it away. So... So the lottery is a tax on people who are bad at math? Okay. The tax on stupidity. Okay. Johnny? Then why haven't I done it? You're not. You're, you're bright. That was a humble bit. Yeah, you're a bright boy. Um, so, one, so before I was a Christian, we're out on this, we're out on this uh, ship with my family. We've taken this trip, and I'll, I'll probably close with this. Is it close? I can't tell back there. Is, that, is it like 1027? Okay, very good. So we're on this, on this ship, and I'm, I'm doing the math, and I'm like, okay, if I bet on this roulette table, and I double my money each time, if I keep putting it on black and double my money, so again, not a Christian, not defending this, then, you know, I'm going to end up ahead. And so basically, it went black like 13 times in a row until I didn't have any money left, so I lost all the money, which at that time was only like three or $400, but to me, it seemed like this incredible amount of money, and, you know, when I'm making like six bucks an hour back then, and so... That was my experience with gambling. wasn't a good one. <laughs> never, never went back to the roulette table. I uh, would discourage anyone else. There's reasons. You know, when you, when you go to casinos, there's a reason there's this big, expensive casino versus a sign that says we had to close down because we ran out of money. Does that make sense? You know, if, if casinos, if people actually made money at casinos, you'd go to visit the casino, and it would say, and it would say we're, we're closed, we're turning this into a hospital because we can't afford to pay anyone anymore. You know, and, and, but no, you go there, and they are there. There's all the lights, and, and it just totally has got to be one of the most, um, one of the worldliest ways of appealing to the flesh that you can imagine, all the alcohol that's offered and the, and the glamour and glitz and everything. But yeah, it works. It draws people in. So any other thoughts before we close? Okay, Father, thank you for this time. We, we recognize money is a big topic in your word. Help us to be good stewards. I think having more money just makes our stewardship uh, heavier and makes us more accountable to you, Lord. And, and so whatever you allow us to have, whether a lot or a little, help us to be generous, help us to use it for your kingdom, to care for our families, um, to serve the, the church, to be generous with the church. And so I pray, Lord, that you would uh, guide our stewardships and that you would help us to, to be wise, that our service or ministry to you wouldn't be hindered by an ab- a lack of money, 
and that what we have could be used for your glory, Lord. Be with us during this time of fellowship and then into the worship service, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.